Welcome to Estradial Illusions, episode six, the first episode since the second that has the correct order. With the season starting, everything's been kind of all over the place, but this is our first official Game of Thrones season eight weekly recap. Got a great panel of guests to dissect the episode. Uh, why don't we introduce our guest, Michelle? Do you want to go first? Hi, I'm Michelle Jaworski. I am the Game of Thrones reporter at The Daily Dot, and I'm happy to be talking about Game of Thrones with everybody. Great. Happy to have you. Uh, Joe? Uh, yeah, I am uh, Matt, also known as Joe Magician. I have a YouTube channel at, Mag- at youtube.com slash Joe Magician. Uh, I'm a feature writer for Watchers on the Wall, a moderator for the Song of Ice and Fire board on Reddit, and a co-host of the Maester Monthly podcast. Whew. I've actually got that down now. I can remember them all. It's great. <laughs> titles, titles, titles. So many titles. I need a Masande. That's so good. <laughs> My name is Clint. I'm from uh, Laws of Ice and Fire dot uh, com um, and Westeros Law on Twitter. Uh, also at Clint W on Twitter. Uh, for Laws of Ice and Fire, we just published our first essay last week, or I guess the Royal, we just published our first essay last week, um, mm-hmm. on, uh, why there are no laws in either the book or show universe of, uh, Westeros that prevents a woman from sitting the iron throne. So I am also excited to be back. Awesome. And Clint, while, uh, earlier last week, Clint put up a great thread on the subject of whether John legally killed Ali, Sir Alistair, and all of those people, all the mutineers when he came back. I highly recommend checking it out. I think we're going to do an episode just on that. We're going to battle, uh, we're going to have the legal juggernauts come in and battle it out. My partner Tara is going to argue for me because I do not have a law degree. <laughs> Yet. The night is young. So let's Let's start in Winterfell, where we had a lot of throwbacks to the first episode, both in the beginning of the episode and at the end. Yeah, definitely. I I watched the pilot maybe an hour, hour and a half before the new episode aired. And so they really kind of stood out to me. Uh, for example, the young boy who kind of sees uh, John and Daenerys' caravan uh, coming towards Winterfell. You have Arya who is kind of watching outside of the castle gates, but, and then kind of sneaks into the line later. Um, you know, the Winterfell is yours, your grace from Sansa to Daenerys. It's the same thing that Ned Stark said to Robert Baratheon in the first episodes, kind of a, your house is my house kind of message. Uh, Jamie's entrance at the end of the episode, when he takes off his hood is kind of like when he takes off his helmet, and there, there's just so many of those, like, kind of strung in there, like, almost like Easter eggs that we all spot within 10 seconds of the episode airing. Yeah, even the um, the amount of children that were in the visible shot when Daenerys and John got there, Lord Royce was flanked by uh, Lyanna Mormont and all the other people. I thought that they did a really good job throwing back to the first episode. Yeah, if you look at those two uh, shots back to back that that um, initial receiving line um, from episode one and yesterday they're they're very similar in the way that everybody's uh, everybody's standing there. Um, and it's interesting seeing the people who are in both shots and how much they've changed. That's really cool. Um, I also thought that there were some interesting callbacks to um, 
the way the the little boy kind of like climbed up to to look, I realized that's definitely like a callback to to Bran, but it also sort of reminded me of how Arya climbed on the statue of Baylor to watch uh, Ned's execution a little bit. I don't know why, um, but I, I got a little bit of those vibes um, as well. Um, but I'm I'm curious, and I, I we have the perfect person to talk about this uh, for. Uh, on the podcast today. Um, but Matt, did you, did you see any, any parallels to the cold open of the, of season one, episode one? Uh, Oh, definitely. Um, I thought the, I noticed the same thing you did that. It looked like that little kid was imitating Bran and Arya. And it was kind of interesting. The, the construction of that short character and what he was, I mean, that short appearance of that character and what he was doing because Arya and Bran have lost so much of their identity. They've stopped being children. They've right. killed the boy as Maester Eamon said, or killed the girl in Arya's, cha- Arya's case. And so it, it's kind of like the, the innocence of Winterfell is still running around while all the grizzled people were sort of unhappy to see each other, I would say. And especially um, how, <laughs> the way the crowd kind of reacted to Daenerys as she was walking in is kind of similar to um, almost the reception Waymar Royce got in the initial prologue where nobody's happy to see him. It's a Southerner, a fancy Southerner coming up and <laughs> Daenerys and Missandei and Grey Worm all kind of eye check each other. I'm like, I don't feel comfortable with this. Like maybe not in a, they're going to, they're going to kill us way, but definitely an unwelcome way. Yeah. Winterfell. I mean, it, for all the to jump ahead a little bit, the politics of the monarchy situation just in my head at least contrasted really well with just the amount of uh tents they had set up, the amount of people that are just in Winterfell, you know, the scene back in the Dragon Pit last season. It just seemed kind of you know, the the stakes couldn't be more dire, war is imminent, and then they start sort of diving into a broader political discussion. And I thought that the images of just how many people were in Winterfell, which looks great despite what uh, Theon did to it in season two. But I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, they really cleaned the place up. Uh, how many times has, has it been sacked now <laughs> and restored and uh, just completely rebuilt? It looks like like completely fresh new castle, but somehow they keep rebuilding it. In it's noted that the architecture of Winterfell is very old. They use towers and castles and keeps that no one else does. And they keep rebuilding them. They're not making new ones. They're not using new architecture. They're like, eh, we're just going to keep making Winterfell the same as it always been. Yeah. Who do you think was tasked with the uh, rebuilding project? Was it Ramsey? Did Ramsey spearhead that? Possibly. I mean, don't they, in the books, they, they kind of talk about how they're rebuilding like the stables and whatnot. Um, yeah. And in A Dance with Dragons, they make a... Uh, in pretty much every chapter that's set at Winterfell, they sort of they talk about what parts of it are still uh, habitable for parties and stuff. <laughs> and uh, they, but they do kind of go out of the way to say, yeah, this place is kind of a dump. <laughs> yeah, like the first keep, which has basically collapsed in on itself. Like large parts of the castle are basically still unusable. They've just rebuilt the only parts they they still use. It's kind of like a Heron Hall or the Night Fort in that way. It's just too big for the family at this point. So in Winterfell, I think the MVP of uh, those scenes, at least in my opinion, was Sansa, who really, it seems like they were sort of paying crowd homage to the fact that she really gets not, she takes a beating from the fandom, and Tyrion acknowledging that, you know, for all the people who counted her out, she's still around, they're not. Uh, 
I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, um, and then also Arya complimented her in a sort of a break from their conflict last season where she said she was the smartest person she's ever met. That's high praise from Arya, and I'm glad that they had her say that in sort of like maybe an apology for what they did to the two characters last season. Yeah, I, I, I came from a fairly large family and I had three older sisters. And so, you know, you, I definitely had the dynamic with like some of them where, you know, it's like maybe my eldest stepsister or my eldest sister, you know, like we might sort of team up against somebody else. And then if you've ever been in that situation where, you know, perhaps that team hasn't teamed up in a while and, and you, try and like make an in joke. And that's what felt like John was trying to do is be like, well, you know, you know, we, it, at least it's us against Sansa and Arya saying, no, actually it's not, it's not, we're all, um, it, uh, I'm on Sansa's side for this. Um, it, it was, uh, it was definitely a great moment between siblings or what, what they grew up thinking that they were siblings and, and one that I can recognize for sure. Yeah, it was very refreshing to see them getting along because I, I was not a fan of the plot where Littlefinger was trying to drive them apart because I didn't think much of it made sense. Like, it was there, they were fighting until the moment where they weren't fighting anymore and then they were going to kill Littlefinger. So it always felt a little contrived to me, like that specific conflict that he kind of put them against each other and hoped that like Sansa would, you know, get Arya out of the way. As far as uh, the premiere goes, you know, after, you know, when it comes to, to Littlefinger, like Sansa knows him better, even if she's known Arya longer. Whereas this time around, Arya knows Sansa. She doesn't know Daenerys at all. So in after the experience that they had, they can, they know that they can trust each other, that they're in it until the end. Whereas Daenerys is kind of a wild card at this point. So all she has is John's word, which after the last season might not be good enough anymore. You know, in in a sense, you can that can change within an episode or two. But at this moment, she's going to take Sansa's side. And that makes sense for me. Yeah, I really liked how Sansa was really taking charge of House Stark because, you know, they're they've still got the weight of the North on their hands, even if Danny has, you know, brought all her big army to see John give away the crown so easily after you know kind of being appointed that under weird circumstances i kind of when everybody started chanting you know king in the north i started thinking to myself well sansa's sitting right there why doesn't she get it instead of john who is was at that point you know still regarded as a bastard and a night's watch deserter and somebody who nobody's really sure if he died or not uh, which i'm glad they mentioned that uh, aria had the call back to how John survived the stabbing, which he didn't survive, but he got brought back. It was, uh, I really like that moment because Arya is sort of um, playing the game of faces throughout this entire episode with everyone she's reuniting with. She's starting off um, testing them and seeing who they've become. And in that moment, it, it, she's telling John that not only does he know, does she know what he's been through, she, he knows one of her, I mean, she knows one of his big secrets. And it was it was a very interesting encounter. Their body language is very strange. It was I think a lot of people expected the Arya John reunite to be the big hug. They were gonna ruffle each other's hair and everything was to be great. And Arya was showing that no, no, that's not gonna happen. There are bigger things at play. And John, you may have messed up a little bit because I think John, when he came back, it seemed like he was expecting high fives from everybody. Like, look, I brought Daenerys. I brought two armies. I brought dragons. Like, isn't this what you want? And everyone's like. 
you, you, you didn't do it exactly right. You also didn't bring like a ton of food with you. The Lannister army didn't come with you. There was a lot of problems with what he felt was a victory, but everyone else is reminding him about like, hey, we may still die, even though you brought these awesome gifts with you. Yeah, I really liked how Sansa, especially just showing that she's the responsible one, was brought up just the notion of food. I thought they'd even mention that when uh, they first mentioned that the dragons were only consuming 14 sheep. That's a lot something. of sheep. I forget the exact number, but... It's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And yet, apparently, that's not enough, because who would have thought the dragons didn't really like the cold weather? I mean, <laughs> I'm with them there. They're also the size of airplanes at this point, so I can see how 14... You know, a, like a dozen, dozen and a half sheep might not be enough for them. How do you think that Daenerys learned the exact number of sheep that a dragon should consume on a daily basis? Do you think she had like a maester tell her or was it kind of like a trial and error thing? Well, Tyrion knows all that stuff, right? I mean, he read all those books, so I'm going to I'm going to say Tyrion. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, that's a good guess. Varys maybe could uh, do some spying. I wish Varys could uh, do more than just kind of be the butt of a weird eunuch joke that kind of felt like uh lazy writing in the beginning. But, right. you know, with the, you know, Kyburn went from master of whispers to hand of the King and Varys went from master of whispers to sort of semi retired, uh, part-time player. That's true. It's, um, this is sort of a side effect. I think of the increase of brands role where he has really superseded many of these characters. Littlefinger was clearly out of his depth last season, and I think they're signaling early on that Varys, at this point, is pretty much irrelevant. His only purpose is going to be probably advising Tyrion and Davos, that his time in that role in the show is probably pretty much over. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, he's been a really fun character. Uh, I'm not necessarily surprised that he's still around, because there's not really an obvious moment where he would have been killed, but... You know, it's hard to see him surviving the show. And at the same time, it's also hard to speculate on, you know, who or what is going to kill the spider. Well, we've seen him hiding in the crypts in the trailer. So I don't know (laughs) if you're hiding in the crypts and it looks like Winterfell is totally screwed in the upcoming episodes. Not not high on the likely to survive chart. It was kind of like Thoros during the White Heist whole thing. It was like, what's he still doing here? Oh, no, he's probably next. Oh, I miss Thoros. Speaking of Bran, though, what did we think about how his reunion with Jon didn't include some sort of like awkward, oh, here's this thing that I know about you that I'm just going to, you know, casually drop that I'm omniscient. I know everything. I thought it was really interesting, especially with the way that Bran uh, reacted and was kind of pushing buttons throughout the rest of the episode where for some reason he was waiting. He really wanted to wait for Jon to learn this information after he had ridden the dragon and then after somehow Samwell heard about um, what Daenerys did to his, to his father and brother, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what his goal is at this point, but I think it's clear that Bran is playing with this information and using it in tactical ways to get at some goal, even though it's not quite clear what that is yet. He also seemed much more animated than he has in some of the past episodes. Like when, we see John and then Danny and Sansa kind of doing, you know, the pleasantries of, you know, welcome to Winterfell, yada, yada, yada. And he's like, we don't have time for any of this. Like, dragons, like, with the Night King, the wall's down. We we got to do something. So I, f- I feel like that 
enough kind of communicates the fact that he kind of, he has his power even if uh John and Danny might not understand the extent of it because you know the fact that Viserion fell and it you know had died beyond the wall probably isn't common knowledge like it's even something Cersei had to guess and like figure out based on the fact that she only saw two dragons in King's Landing last season so i think at least as far as his abilities go that that kind of a bit kind of got it uh the point across to me versus him kind of you know going well all this explanation of something we already know so then that's less time they're wasting in the episode oh that's a good point yeah he he was kind of serving as like um yeah almost exposition previously and now he is withholding information like Littlefinger and Varys used to do so they've made him I think a much more interesting character in that way yeah, and that's a good point. If he just drops, if Bran just drops the oh the uh, RLJ bomb on John, then we're robbed of that. What a really interesting scene that we got where uh, Sam is confronting John about his essential, essentially abdication of the sovereignty that the North Place gave to him. Um, I think that that that's where a lot of the anger from Lyanna Mormont and the the um, assembled Northern Lords and Sansa comes from is that it's not just that, you know, he bent the knee to some dragon queen, but he, he, but he was granted sovereignty, um, on behalf of all of those Northern, uh, Lords and then just gave it away. So we get that scene, we get that, um, the Sam confronting him about, um, what Daenerys did to his family and then he he drops the RLJ bomb. He, he drops John's parentage reveal at the same time. Um, it, it was much more impactful and, and interesting and passionate than it would have been if it weren't if it were just Bran saying, "Oh, by the way, good to see you. Um, here's this this piece of information. I'm going to go off and be weird someplace <laughs> else." Um, you know, like I think that the way that they did it was was a little bit confusing to me until. Till I thought about it and realized that, oh, this is this is better television, um, this sort of conflict um, they, as part of uh, exposition. Yeah, they did. They handled Bran well. I've often in the interim between season seven and eight kind of wondered. I often referred to him as Bran X Machina and he kind of with his weird, creepy re- revelations. We've made the jokes about how he's kind of a hipster before. And there he was sitting in the Winterfell courtyard, maybe waiting for the Burning Man pre-sale tickets to become available. Sure. It seemed it seemed kind of odd that he halfway through the episode or so said, we don't have time for this. And then he, we see a lot more scenes of him just sort of chilling there waiting. <laughs> yeah, that was it was kind of funny. Uh, someone on Twitter made point. a joke like we have to do this immediately, but also I have to sit outside for 14 hours exactly waiting for Jamie Lannister to show up like oh, there's a little bit of a strangeness going on there but i did find it really interesting that bran essentially fired sam like a gun at john and in a way that drove a wedge between john and daenerys he like he he specifically was waiting for sam to be super upset about that news so i think it speaks to that he's really advancing in terms of what kind of foresight he's using and the, the subtlety of how he's doing it like he started last season with the dagger you gave to aria and how that kind of set off the chain of events that killed Littlefinger. I think we're seeing the same kind of thing happening again. It's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting to see that uh, 
whatever whatever's going to happen with Bran down the road, it does kind of they're they're handling him well. It's a I imagine he's probably a very difficult character to write for. Oh yeah, he has to he basically has to hold the intention of the entire scene, but he can't really talk. He can't really emote. I was uh, I was talking to Joanna Robinson on Twitter. I compared it to kind of Charles Dance's uh, performance as Tywin Lannister, where he has to do a lot without actually acting uh, emotively very much. He really has to display power and wisdom in a way that other characters are allowed to, and he can't. Well, one, one thing, one question I have is: so, are are we assuming that Bran was waiting for Jamie as opposed to somebody else? I think so. He uh, he said to Sam that he, I think he was waiting for an old friend. I assume that has to be Jamie, right? Right, but and I, you know, I forget where I saw this today. Um, but it was pointed out that Theon is also on his way. Oh, interesting. Maybe he means multiple friends. Maybe he means the Night King too. <laughs> could be. Well, he could mean any one of those people. I think it's likely Jamie, but I just thought it was an interesting idea that it could have been somebody else. And he's like, "Oh, Jamie Lannister, fancy seeing you here." Maybe Mira, Mira Reed. Although I don't think we're gonna could we're be. gonna see her again. Somebody said that she's the actress no. is not coming. No, that's a shame. That, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but that would be a shame. I really yeah. liked her. I thought she got a raw deal. I did want to circle back to Sansa really quickly, if if I could. I guess I wanted to open it up um, among everybody here, because I know that there was a lot of um, teeth gnashing about, oh, they're going to sort of manufacture this this conflict between Sansa and Danny. Um, because, you know, nobody can get along and it's just about making these two powerful women hate each other. Um, and you know, I, I can admit that I shared some of those concerns given the ham handed way that they've, they've, uh, the show sometimes, um, has their characters interact, but I, I was really quite pleased with how organically, uh, that conflict happened. I thought that it, every, the character's motivations all made sense specifically Sansa she has every reason in the world to distrust um Danny certainly everything every reason in the world to distrust Tyrion um and John has proven that he's not necessarily the most reliable person in, in the world from her perspective um so like what did you guys think did you guys think that 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 conflict made sense or was it just sort of manufactured uh, i guess I guess I'll go first. Uh, okay. Uh, I thought it was, I thought it made a lot of sense, especially from where Sansa was coming from. Um, and that John went away with his crown, came back without it completely, like did a 180 on the plan and shows up with Tyrion Lannister of all people. And like this massive burden that she now has, has to deal with. And it's, and I can see why Sansa would just trust uh, Danny at this point. The only things they've heard about her are probably the death of uh, Randall and Dickon and the destruction of the loot train battle or the Field of Fire part two, and that she's the Mad Queen's daughter. I, especially when she shows up um, being her own lovely self, you can forgive Sansa for thinking, oh no, my brother's being a dumbass again like he has been many, many times before. Right. And not really, not really knowing what to make yeah. of this dragon queen who's showing up in maybe the least helpful, helpful way possible. Yeah, I mean, I I really liked how they did bring the burning of Randall and Dick on Tarly back because when it happened at the time, I thought it was kind of odd that defending the sort of Lannister claim to the throne was the hill that Randall wanted to die on after fighting for the Loyalists, and it, it seemed odd that he would 
you know, sacrifice himself just for that. But, you know, having seen this scene now, it, it makes a lot more sense that the writers were definitely thinking more toward next season and maybe clearing some of the players off the table and facilitating. Really, Sam's probably is... I, I, I felt very... He, he's never been one of my super favorite characters, but I felt very... Uh, bad for him. I felt especially bad that he had to have that news delivered while Sir Jorah Mormon was around. <laughs> you know, yeah. I thought that it would be better if he wasn't, or if he was off somewhere getting grayscale again. Yeah, I thought that this was uh, John Bradley West's best performance of the series to date. I thought that he just absolutely nailed it, knocked it out of the park, and um, really carried both the scene with Danny and the scene with John. Um, from his respective scene partners and definitely stole it from, from that, that cad Jorah. So speaking of the dragon riding, what did people think about that? Michelle, what did you think of the dragon riding? Uh, I, I definitely appreciated that John, they didn't try to make it look like John knew what he was doing because it would have been totally unbelievable if he figured out dragon riding on the very first time. Uh, so he was just kind of flopping around a lot. On the other hand, it kind of makes him look silly. So, you know, this big emotional moment, you, you have the, you have the sound effects you have, and you know, the sound design and you have, uh, Rami and Jawadi's, uh, score, like, you know, soaring in and like creating this big emotional moment. And then John just looks like an idiot. <laughs> Classic John. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Especially like ridiculous with this Mac with his massive cloak behind him, just sort of fluttering in the wind. I'd honestly kind of remind me of this is a very specific memory, but like the Back to the Future ride, I think at like Disney World or Disneyland, it kind of felt like you were watching all of this happen around you. I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no, guys, I, I know you can do better. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Universal. Oh, Universal, yeah, yeah. Just as a as somebody who goes to Disneyland like every week. Chris <laughs> would say, if anyone's a theme park aficionado, it is Ian. Yeah, I really, you know, I think that when it comes to the John Daenerys relationship, there were a lot of people last season who really weren't on board. They don't have Amelia Clark and Kit Arrington don't have like a ton of natural chemistry. Not like, well, obviously Kit Arrington and Rose Leslie have some natural chemistry. They got married, but. Uh, I really liked that they, in this sort of table setting scene, found time to give them a scene together that really did come across as authentic and it was fun and they didn't try to protect John flying around on the dragon. He did kind of look like a fool. It was was cute. I I really liked that scene. Uh, I think Manu, our good friend Manu, was saying this where he was like, if this was the low point of the episode, like, that's a pretty good episode overall. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, I did think it was the low point of the episode. I, you know, sat there the whole time going like, oh, they didn't even tell him that he is a Targaryen before they did this and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was watching with my partner, um, who is a show only person um, and generally pays attention. And I asked her afterwards, like, did it bother you that, you know, John just sort of like jumped on the dragon and like that, that was all cool. And she had no idea what I was talking about, why this would bother me. <laughs> she was like, no, uh, it was fine and kind of cute. And I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. Uh, maybe I should just, you know, shut the fuck up and let, <laughs> let Game of Thrones be Game of Thrones. Um, Do we think Drogon and Rhaegal figured it out, though? Because it kept kind of looking over as John and Danny were making out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do they think they they figured out that he was that he's a that John's a Targaryen? Oh uh, yeah, no, I think they know. I think that they can smell it on him. Yeah, um, they made a point of that last season when the dragons seemed to like John. At when they were all on Dragonstone. Yeah, somehow they can smell Targaryens. Like, do they smell spicy or something? Like, is it like a <laughs> hot peppers or something? What are we talking about? I don't know. I don't know. It's like the pheromones. Yeah, the the famous Targaryen uh, pheromones. I was also wondering, Michelle, at your question where if you meant like, did they figure out sex in that moment? Like Rhaegal and Dragon, like, oh, interesting. <laughs> That's how you guys do it? Gross. It's like a dog at the end of the bed. Like, what are you guys doing over there? It felt very like, like the pets are staring at us. Yeah. I know they're your children, but they're giving me like the side. Either that or that scene from Captain America Civil War where um, Steve Rogers and Sharon Carter are like kissing in the car and then Bucky and Falcon are doing like that really awkward head nod <laughs> of approval. <laughs> The dragon <laughs> approval? Yes, you may make out. Oh, maybe that was it. Maybe they were like, yeah, yeah, we like that. That's good, mom and dad. I think I dragon know. sexuality is underrepresented no. in the show. I, I agree. agree. Yeah, they don't, they, you know, they, they talk about sex in so many, they had the bronze scene that was, uh, you know, he was having a good time and yet Drogon doesn't get to have any fun. Well, we'll see by the end of the season, maybe he will. Well, uh, you know that, like, the the dragons are canonically, um, you know, genderless. Um, that they can they change gender, right? Like that's the that's what yeah was in fire and blood, and so you know, like they're queer. What I'm, is what I'm getting at? Yeah, I like the <laughs> I like the transgender dragons. We haven't had a transgender Game of Thrones characters. So it's about time that in season eight they uh, got with yeah. the picture. I think the exact quote from Fire and Blood was like. We don't know what gender they are until eggs come out, and then we say it's a female, and that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, like John called Regal, but you know, referred to Regal as he, but I don't think John knows. It's like, oh, it's just, isn't he gonna like, you know, kill me or something? And Danny is just, well, that was nice knowing you, right? So <laughs> I appreciate her healthy attitude toward uh, finding somebody and falling in love with them at the end of the world. Yeah, it's sweet to have, you know, after all Danny's been through, to just have, like, a simple flying around moment with a guy and sort of treat, you know, flying a dragon for the first time as a, oh, you'll get the hang of it or you won't kind of moment. Yeah, that was a real trial by fire there. <laughs> Ride this dragon or die and we're over. Yeah, well, it's better than, you know, the swipe swipe right, swipe, swipe left option. At the end of it, it just makes everyone not trust John even more because... Well, he can ride a dragon. Nobody else in Westeros can do that. How do we know your intentions are good? It's another thing just to backtrack for a second with, with the whole whole Sansa Danny um, conflict, which I, I do buy and I do buy right now because Northerners don't trust easily and Danny has not given any reason for you know for anyone to trust her. And, you know, they don't know what we know about her. So for us, it'd be like, well, duh, trust her. Like, that's the easy, easiest decision you can make. But, you know, we're not in the show. Um, but I do like that Santa called John out to be like, hmm. did you give up the North, you know, for the, the people? Or was it because of love or your own heart or something like that? Um, she's not entirely wrong. 
No, definitely. Uh, do you get the feeling that throughout this entire episode, right up until he gets told that he's Aegon Targaryen, like the Lego movie song, everything is awesome, just because it's just going through his head? <laughs> he's got a dragon, he's got a new girlfriend, he's got obsidian, everything's going great. And it's like, oh, by the way, everything's a lie. Yeah, you know, everything was kind of going well for John. He had a lot of his family back. He even had, uh, we had that weird scene where Davos, Varys, and Tyrion were kind of, they were like his, uh, their fairy godparents just kind of sitting up on the, uh, up on the stoop speculating as to their, their romance. But, uh, I love pretty much every scene that Davos is in, so I'll cut him some slack for a scene that probably didn't need to be there. I'm happy when he gets something to do, even if it's just like shooting the shit with the other ignored, uh, advisors. To the rolling class. Yeah, he, he's really kind of merged, you know, for for as much as the North struggle to trust people, for whatever reason, Davos has kind of ingrained himself into the Northern cause pretty well. I mean, he's been up there, he even hinted, uh, or he said to Tyrion that he'd been up there a while. Uh, he's a great reconnaissance guy. It makes me, uh, makes me long for the days where he used to advise a certain other <laughs> character who I love. A certain dead character, right? Well, we haven't seen the body, so... Oh, don't, don't do this. Don't be that guy. <laughs> I mean, could there. we see the body come the win- Battle of Winterfell? Oh. Oh, that would break my heart. I really... I've... You know, I think if there's anybody who would, like, retain their personality after becoming a White Walker, <laughs> it's probably Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> He'd just be scowling. Yeah. Of course, you know. Now I'm going to take the throne... I, I asked Ian before whether she would, you know, start rooting for the White Walkers if that happened. And I think she was quite candid and said, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's, I respect that. <laughs> I respect that. You bent the knee. Hey, you know, honestly, after this scene, uh, after this episode where we had the Banksy Night King debuting his new mural that disappears, <laughs> I might already be on their team already. Yeah, I mean, that's fucking art, man. Like, putting that up there. That took a long time for, well, Joe brought up that, because the question with the mural that I'd always been wondering was, did the Night King know for sure that there would be people up there in the north to see his artwork when he did that? Or, and I guess he would have known because Last Hearth is uh, in between Eastwatch and Winterfell that they would have. That was your, uh, that was your analysis, Joe? Yeah, uh, if you look at the just the map of the north, if you're going straight from Eastwatch to Winterfell, Last Hearth is directly on the way. And Ed Tollett uh, comments that the White Walkers are between Last Hearth and Winterfell at that point. So they clearly did not go along the wall and exterminate everybody. And they didn't go um, west from their perspective to Carhold. They didn't go to the Dreadfort. They were going right for Winterfell. So... It, as they know their own movements, he must know there were still people behind him, most likely Night's Watch members that would see this at some point. It would have been a real shame if he'd spent all that time doing that with all the hands and stuff. And, you know, nobody would be there to see his street art that he made. That's a Hannibal Lecter level of dedication to his craft. <laughs> NBC Hannibal, for the record. I, I, yeah, I don't know. The Night King strikes me as like kind of an art for art's sake kind of guy. Like not where it's like, oh, I'm I'm going for like big audience here. Like it, it's just, you know, he, he's a craftsperson. He really takes his time. 
Um, and it's just about the personal satisfaction that he gets from nailing a small child to the wall and arranging the bodies. It's, it's, uh, I think that he, he does a good job, uh, with, with that piece. And, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily that he's, he's, uh, going for, for big distribution, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I want to see the night Kings Etsy shop. I bet it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, the Night King not being in the books, I tend to not, I tend to, for whatever reason, not really speculate on people who aren't in the books or things that don't really happen. But I mean, that really, in terms of who won the episode on character development, I really got to hand it to him. He really won me over with his art. Sure. Yeah, it was it was surprisingly interesting. And I'm actually uh, writing a theory for my YouTube channel at the moment um, uh, about this and how Barrick commented that this was actually a message. Whereas before it had been commented on by Mance that it was art, basically. But no, it, it's pointed and somebody's supposed to see it. And I think it's really interesting in a way that even his, the way he's depicting himself, the way he's leaving messages is evolving in a way, which is you know, a sure shine of intelligence and in that he's really not, I think a lot of people have the idea that he's like Skynet or the Terminator, ah. but clearly there's much more going on in his head. That's interesting. I, so you, you always wonder, you know, how omniscient is the Night King? How much does he know? Or is he just, you know, somebody who's just kind of wants to paint? Yeah, that's true. And there was the interview with uh, the actor, Vladimir Furtick, I think is the name, in Entertainment Weekly, where he dropped some uh, knowledge that basically the Night King did not want to be the Night King, that he's out for revenge, and he's got a target in mind this upcoming season. And it... it I wasn't really sure what to make of that, but after this episode, I think it's becoming a lot more clear that they're making him a more complex villain than he's been in the past. I think uh, as far as the Night King goes, like in, in the past, you know, it's it's devastating to see what he's done, how it, you know, how it affects the living. But as a character, it's kind of hard to, you know, feel much of anything because he's just kind of there and he raises his hand and then all of his minions do the thing. Um, and, you know, and eventually or occasionally he he'll kill something or raise something from the dead, but I am definitely here for more complex night King. Even if we still never hear him speak, I believe we're never going to hear him speak, which, you know, I'm perfectly fine with. We've seen him speak through his art already, which right. is profound. Yeah. The other the other big thing from that scene, uh, I've really ever since I really I looked up his name earlier, but I forget the actor who plays uh, Barrick Dondarrion. Vladimir Furtick. No, Barrick. Uh, Richard Dormer. Richard oh, Dormer. Oh, the original. I'm yeah. sorry. He I, I really his voice. I just uh, he's got my favorite accent in the whole series after Davos. I just uh, I really like that Barrick's still around. He's not in the he's dead in the books because of Lady Stoneheart. Did a little trade there, but I just. You know, if if he came up to me at a bar, I mean, my clothes would be off. And like, <laughs> you are not the only person I've heard that from. Boy, I mean, he's got he he pulls off the rugged. Uh, you know, Bran is trying to be a hipster and all that, but he should take some fashion advice from Beric. He looks great. He sounds great. I I, I hope he makes it through the through the end, if only for Thoros' sake, because that was a really sad death. Sure, Cersei. Um, what do we what do we have on Cersei? Anybody jump in? Um, I really feel that for her because she expected elephants and didn't get any. So I think that she, 
<laughs> I, I believe that Cersei was uh, scammed just a little bit, not completely, because she did get twenty thousand members of the Golden Company, which you know has a you know much different association in the books. And yeah, we have Fagon in that whole thing, whereas they're just going to be a bunch of cell swords here, led by a man named Harry Strickland who looks a lot like Jamie Lannister. <laughs> Which, I was going to say, he looks like Discount Jamie. <laughs> discount Jamie. She wanted elephants. She didn't get elephants. Um, I mean, I guess we can only have one Lord of the Rings esque reference in a battle per season. We're already going to get the Helm's Deep esque, you know, kind of siege with, you know, the women and children in the crypts of Winterfell. I guess we can't have the Oliphants either. But it would be it would be really great. I love that Twitter seemed to really get behind Cersei on the elephants because, I mean, she just she's often she's often kind of on her own with her desires and her wishes. But I think I think the fandom was behind her. Elephants would have been maybe maybe like with Star Wars, how George Lucas put in all of the new scenes in the 90s. Maybe later we can have a DVD release with uh bunch of elephants but i don't think there's a lot of money in the cgi budget left over for them right now sadly gotta save it for ice spiders fingers crossed <laughs> uh, and lo- and lots of dire wolves lots of right dire wolves guys yeah yeah we yeah. gotta get that over under on the dire wolves uh over a minute but, uh, <laughs> i think say like over under one or two that's the one reunion i wanted to see this episode that we just didn't get is john and ghost what if when John was getting on the dragon, they just kind of like cut over to Ghost in the corner, just tragically, you know, great by by Felicia moment. Sad. That would have been so on the nose about the whole like R plus L equals J thing. I would, the, my eyes would just rolled out of my head. Like, look, there's a direwolf and a dragon. Uh, uh. We've got uh, five more epi- five <laughs> more episodes. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we get that moment. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, any scene with uh, going back to Cersei, any scene with Lita Headey is obviously going to be worthwhile. She elevates everything that she touches. Um, I, I do think that Euron Greyjoy is not my favorite scene partner of hers. I think that she, you know, has so much history with the other scene partners that she's had, and she's able to imbue all of her interactions with these this uh, great, you know, pathos and. Uh, antipathy and all of the emotions that she's able to convey. But with Euron, he's just like such a fuck boy that it doesn't really matter. She's just, and she knows it and he knows it. And she's just like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm, I'm, she doesn't have as much to work with because the, the relationship isn't there. Um, so I, these weren't my favorite parts of the season or the scene, the, excuse me, the episode, but, uh, I, I, you know, put, Cersei Lannister doing anything and I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, it's just not my favorite Cersei Lannister. I'd agree with that. It was, um, I think going into the season, a lot of people maybe had misguided hopes that we were going to get the full crow's eye, the Eldritch, Eldritch apocalypse that is Euron Greyjoy. And no, like you said, he's just a fuckboy. He just wants to have sex with a queen as his like greatest ambition in life. And like the scene was fine. <laughs> And I respect that, that ambition for sure. Like that, that that's a worthwhile ambition, but still, sorry. But not, not quite the, the crow's eye that we know yeah. from the books. That I think a lot of people are hoping for. And like, as a companion to this scene, the, um, Theon rescuing Yara, 
I mean, I guess it was fine. They just needed to establish that Dion was going to be a more heroic figure this season, and they wanted to to sort of tie off the Yara plot. Okay, they did that in like three scenes. That makes sense. It was, I don't know. I was way more interested in the North while this was all happening. Yeah, I do. As as far as Yara goes, I can't say. You know, she's she sees an opening to retake the Iron Isles. She's going there. If I were her, I would say, oh, the ice zombies are in the north. Why don't I put an ocean between them? Although we don't know if they can go underwater. I assume they could probably. Um, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to. But I hope we see more of Yara. But I I can't say from a a logical standpoint that I disagree with her decision to piece the fuck out of there. Yeah, especially because they they name drop in this episode that Euron actually does have the mutes on the silence and I was I was really terrified we were actually going to get that scene where he cuts out her tongue. I was happy they spared her that. Oh yeah. Maybe if something, you know like like Yara said, if something bad happens up in the north then it, you know, with the Iron Islands you know, the whole idea that the Whites can't swim then they'll have somewhere to be safe at. So you know, it, when Theon you know, goes to Winterfell as she gives him her blessing to do, you know, by the end of their kind of interactions together, then, then he can go there and give them the knowledge that, okay, we can, we have somewhere to go in case this doesn't work out. It's like in the, the Buffy, the vampire slayer finale, when Angel shows up and she says, no, 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 go back, go be our second line of defense. I don't know why that came to mind, but any Buffy fans, there we go. It's a deep cut. Yeah. With, uh, with Yara, I was, when we talked last week, I, I was pretty sure that Yara would die in the first episode. She was going to be the first like piece off the board because I thought that they didn't have a whole lot else to do with her and her character. Even though I love, I love the character generally. They, I just didn't see what they were doing. But after this, I could see that being her last scene. You know, like it, it would make sense if they decide not to, you know, have her come back. Um, or I could see it being a situation where, you know, Winterfell falls, some people need to flee to the Iron Islands to, to escape, um, the dead that, that, that could happen either way. So I, you know, I, I, um, was sad to lose my $1 bet with myself, uh, that she would be the first person to die, but, um, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, she was able to escape and hopefully, you know, bring some peace and prosperity to the iron islands for once yeah who had uh who had little uh baby lord umber as the as the first death peg they probably won a lot of money their bracket yeah. looking pretty good <laughs> i had my money on uh actually barrack i thought i didn't know if he was going to survive because the the running through the castle scene and much like thoros he sort of run out a lot of his usefulness as a character i was like oh it seems like he's obvious but I, I was wrong. Eric's just carrying a, a flaming flashlight like, at this point. <laughs> That's yeah. right. I, I love that he can still do the trick without his red priest. Yeah, that's a good point. This was a relatively low body count episode of Game of Thrones. If you think about it, there was like the two ironborn or the two members of the silence who die when Theon rescues Yara. Um, there is poor Ned Umber, and that's kind of it. And I guess all of the other people whose arms were posted up on the wall, but like we didn't see that. So, um, you know, in comparison to other Game of Thrones episodes where it's like, you know, three or four major people are getting. Uh, well, 
Kyburn mentioned that one of the women who was with uh, Bronn had some kind of illness, so I don't know if that counts in the body count. True. But and uh, somebody pointed this out that the soldiers that the women were talking about had died. That it may have been Ed Sheeran and his friends, Aww. and then right. one of them was was a ginger. <laughs> I I think that that was that was like confirmed somewhere, or maybe it was just uh, like Joanna Robinson and Kim Renfro both said yes that that's Ed Sheeran. And I trust them above everybody else. So. Or not above everyone. But. Poor, poor Ed Sheeran. Do we do we want to talk about Bron, who is being uh, put in this weird plot line that seems to be born out of the fact that he that the drum Flynn and Lena Headley aren't in any scenes together. I mean, I guess the best thing about it was that they went vintage HBO and brought back the full frontal nudity that we know and love. Yeah, that was basically it. <laughs> it it seemed. Uh, I guess maybe not gratuitous, but uh, unnecessary. But uh, I, I guess as it was in the old days. Yeah, I mean it. Well, yeah, the the novelty factor is definitely worn off. But you know, if if this is really all they've got for Bron, it would have maybe made more sense if he died in the the battle where he shot where he shot Drogon with the uh, with the big crossbow. I think he should have died in that episode. I mean, because he's kind of just been twiddling his thumbs for, and making like dick jokes and Hanton jokes for several seasons now, it seems like. And I'm just like, what are you, what are you doing, Bron? What are you doing? And maybe if he's now um, being put in a position where he has to, well, doesn't have to, but you know, he loves money. So he said yes uh, to murder the, the two, uh, men that he's gotten to know who have paid him uh, for his services and whether he is put in a position to, you know, have to decide whether, you know, fighting for the living, you know, assuming he makes it like up to Winterfell, uh, if he's put in his best, you know, put in a position to, to fight alongside them with no money, but doing so would allow him to actually make money at some point versus no, I, I'm going to take Cersei's money and then just kill you and then come back. So that'll be an interesting uh, quandary for Bronn this season. Yeah, it's it's kind of not much of a plot. It's it, it seems like kind of a waste of the character, especially although it's I think Jerome Flynn said in an interview that people aren't going to like Bronn at the end of the season. So maybe he's actually going to kill one of them. I'm just disappointed. They basically gave him that um, that Bolton Hunter. The guy's name was Locke. Who went to go kill Bran and Rickon? They basically just gave him that plot again, and that was like left me so cold the first time. It's like, oh great, this again. Well, I think you know Bran's going to have to make a decision as to like, you know, what is really the value of gold when the dead are coming? Not a whole lot, you know. Like that is you know some serious deflation of currency. When like <laughs> nobody cares about you know money at all, uh, so I don't know. I I agree with you. I'm I'm not really compelled by the um, by the storyline, but I'm not really compelled by the character much either. I mean, it would have made sense if he had gone. Well, he wouldn't really have had a reason to go with Jamie if if money is really all he's after. But you know, at this point, I I don't really see what what more we have left for the character other than a reunion with Tyrion, which would be fun, but doesn't serve a ton of narrative purpose. 
But I mean, they 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 need to. If the Battle of Winterfell is going to come in episode three, they do have to spend their time doing something. I mean, six episodes is either a lot of time or not a lot of time, depending on where your big events are staged. Sure. True. I also thought the the character in that scene that actually um, was more narratively interesting was actually Kyburn. He talked about himself for the first time in a long time, talked about his past, how he felt about Cersei, about his role in the kingdom at the moment, and how much he has to lose. And he he's sort of been just sort of like a a person that gets things done for Cersei, like plot-wise. And it appears this season that they're going to give him a lot more to do, at least uh, morally. Especially because of the way that Cersei dismissed him when he talked about how the wall had fallen and the dead were marching. And she's like, so what? There was clearly a look of concern on his face, like, this is a problem, even for us. Yeah, and it, maybe it just seemed weird because we didn't get, like, an exterior shot of King's Landing, but it just seems like the capital has been sort of reduced in terms of relevance. It seemed, like, very empty. We had the empty throne room, and then we just had sort of interior scenes in the rooms. I mean, we don't we don't really have... I assume King's Landing is still pretty crowded, but we don't really have any way of knowing. That's a good point. And I, I like the notion of Kyburn, you know, getting a backstory and he's now like sort of the various character that gets an interesting backstory and is, you know, just sneaky and underhanding, underhanded. Um, but I also like how the, the intro now showed us all the machinations of, of like the inside of the throne room, the, the title sequence. Um, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was really cool. I, I wonder how many of those actual rooms we're going to visit this season so far we haven't had anything in that the dungeons where um Valerian the Black Dread's skull is kept and you know like have gone outside the Red Keep for that matter or like gone back to Cersei's map room or anything like that so I'm definitely curious as to why uh the show has featured those scenes in particular not scenes but locations you know, if that's not, if those aren't places we're going to visit at some point. Um, also wanted to point out, um, I believe Kim Renfro um, at Insider highlighted it. Um, the Astro Globe um, that kind of like circles the you know, the map of Westeros features uh, Daenerys' dragons being born, the Red Wedding, and the Wall Falling. Like it's now including scenes from the show instead of stories of the past which is very interesting uh, just to see how uh, Westeros in the show is already encompassing its own history. That's true. It was a, it was a pretty cool notion. I think they showed uh, in particular Daenerys birthing the dragons, like how that will maybe be shown in myths and legends of years to come. That, that whole sequence was really cool. And especially the detail they included, like in the past it used to be just like toy cities pouncing up, but now we're going into passageways. Now we're going to the crypts into the, in the red cleat, yeah, like the red keep, like you were talking about, it really um, upped it in a way they haven't in quite some time. Yeah, it was definitely cool to get an updated. Uh, so much has happened, and it's fun that they took us on that kind of adventure in the credits after seven years of. You know, it's it's always going to be one of the great iconic TV intros, but nice uh, to see they're pulling out all the stops for the final season. Is that the CGI money where the direwolves went? If it is. Yeah, that's why we don't have elephants. We got that. So I guess, you know, we should praise that for all it's worth. That's why we don't have that's why we don't have our elephants. <laughs> that's funny. I'm surprised, you know, I, I almost could have done a full episode on the elephants, but 
you know, I hope that Cersei continues to be. She's not somebody who lets uh, lets things go easily. So maybe discount Jamie will pay the price for his uh, lack of uh, bringing. Uh, you know, if they had brought Dumbo there, then he could have flown and served as a substitute third dragon. Oh, true. I really hope that at the end, like the final battle that Cersei's in, like we get a shot where somebody's like, if only we had a bunch of animals that were larger than horses, but not too big to necessarily ride. Uh, and that would have won us the battle. And then we get like a reaction shot from Cersei going like rolling her <laughs> eyes. Like, yeah, that's why I wanted the fucking elephants. And then she dies. Maybe that's, that's what it is. That would be pretty great. I just feel bad for Harry Strickland. He had to leave behind his favorite elephant, little pussy. Oh, that's the elephant's name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. It? Um, <laughs> I also I picked up on this and some other people did too. I don't think this means anything, but for some reason Harry Strickland is talking exactly like uh Ed Scrain's Dario from when he first showed up, and I don't know why. They've got the same accent that he's pronouncing words the same way. It's strange. Like secret Dario showing up. Oh, imagine. That'd be great. Maybe in an episode or two, we'll get a scene of Yara, Mira Reed, and Dario just kind of hanging out, not being at the wall. Yeah, Dario's basically dead to the world. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. I mean, I always liked him. I know, I you know, the second actor wasn't as fun, but I don't need to see him again. But uh, in the absence of Strong Bell Loss, I, uh, I enjoyed Dario. Do we have uh, final thoughts for everybody on the episode? Who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. I I really liked it. I think it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was definitely like a really great um, way for us to get back into this world that we've been missing for a couple of years. Um, good good table setting episode. You know some low points, but I'll I'll forget about them by the time you know next time next episode rolls around. Um, I am really excited for as a as a law nerd. Um, really excited for the for next week's trial of jamie lannister i hope it i get a lot of um really juicy legal nerdery to talk about uh based on that (laughs) i liked it a lot um i know i've been missing some like the nicer like the smaller character moments that the show had a lot of in earlier seasons some of that was because they needed to stretch you know stretch the episode a bit to make sure they fit the allotment of time which is now a problem I can't imagine them ever having because now they could just put out episodes to be however long they wanted to. So I like the reunions and like a little, it's a little cheesy, but you know, it's like, it's the final season of game of Thrones. It's you have people who haven't seen each other since the pilot, you know, that aired in 2011. So even though you see these actors at events all the time and at premieres, like it's the first time their characters have interacted in several years. So, you know, so it's always great to see that. Uh, I'm really interested to see how John kind of processes the whole R plus L equals J reveal and, you know, who he decides to tell and, or if he decides to tell anybody, we know uh, based off the preview that there's a scene of John Daenerys down in the crypts. So, you know, we don't know if, that's going to play out if he kind of has the realization that, oh, wait, I've been sleeping with my aunt because I don't think that has hit John yet. The other parts of R plus L equal J have, but 
not his relationship yeah. with Danny. And also the Jamie Lannister showcase <laughs> where the, we can hopefully just give him an Emmy now. That'd be fun as he tries to explain to Danny why he had to kill her father. It had to happen. Listen, <laughs> um, in, in terms of what I thought the episode, I agree with, um, with Michelle and Clint. I really enjoyed it as a table setting episode. I think a lot of really entrenched fans had a, a problem with this one because they are kind of covering old ground a lot, but you kind of have to understand why that's happening. It's been quite a while between seasons. A lot of these characters haven't been seen together for quite a long time. Like I am sure there are quite a lot of uh, watchers that saw Arya and Gendry and were like, what's going on between them? And then they saw Maisie smirk and they're like, oh, that makes sense. Whereas for us, it was just kind of like, oh, old news. We already know their relationship at this point. I thought they set up arcs in really interesting ways. They found ways to do uh, character developments and set up the arcs going forward in a way that didn't feel ham-fisted. It felt natural. And I'm pretty excited to see where it goes next. Um, before the inevitable, yeah. like half the cast dying in episode three from <laughs> what we all think. <laughs> yeah, I really liked the episode. I thought that uh, the Night King showing off his artistic side was really cool. Um, Cersei lamenting her army's lack of elephants was fun. The reunions were great. I loved the Arya Hound scene a lot. I thought that was fun that she was able to... I think there's some affection there, but obviously they've been through a lot and got a lot of bad blood that maybe they won't work out, but... Well, see, I thought the episode was, uh, as far as table setting goes, it was really, you know, it, it was kind of cheesy, as Michelle said, but a lot of fun to see the characters again. And it, you know, a, as far as setting up the rest of the season goes, I don't think it could have gone much better. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, uh, I have to thank everybody. Uh, I have to thank our uh, guests for coming on this week. It's so great to, you know, finally get to talk Thrones again. Well, not that we can't do that all the time, but... um having new episodes to dissect and hearing all these new theories and all the fun stuff that people have been picking up on over the past day. It's really amazing what this fandom can do. So thank you so much to everybody for, for coming on and talking Thrones. And, uh, do you guys want to say one more time where we can find you outside or find you in your normal parts of the fandom? Um, you can find my writing at daily dot that's daily dot com dot com. And you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Misha. Uh, it's M-I-C-H-E-J-A-W um, This is Clint uh, You can find me at lawsoficeandfire.com Or at Westeros Law On Twitter um, yeah, And I've been uh, Joe Magician, you can find me on a YouTube channel Of the same name, on Twitter at Joe Magician 42, Watchers on the Wall Where I'm a feature writer and the Maester Monthly Podcast Awesome, thank you so much to everybody for coming on again This is a great discussion and hope to have you all back and to you, the listener, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>